Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Hope all is well at school and at work. Hope you're not burning the candle at both ends and that you're getting plenty of sleep and exercise. In fact, I hope you're working out now or maybe you're biking or walking to get wherever you need to go. Healthy living is something that is super important, not just to the Time for Coffee community, but it's also super important to my guest today. So in his honor, please grab your favorite caffeinated beverage, ideally a mug of iced tea, and get ready for another caffeinated career conversation. My guest, Seth Goldman, co-founded a hugely successful drink company we all now know as Honest Tea, and he founded it out of his kitchen in 1998. Today, 20 years later, Honest Tea is the nation's top-selling organic bottled tea and is carried in more than 140,000 U.S. retail outlets. Under Seth's leadership, Honest Tea has developed innovative partnerships with its organic and fair trade certified suppliers. Seth and his former business school professor are the authors of the New York Times bestseller, Mission in a Bottle, which is a business book told in comic book form. Seth, welcome to Time for Coffee. Thank you. Really nice to be with you. And we are absolutely calling this episode Time for Tea, (laughs) I promise you. (laughs) And I have to ask you, I know you're drinking an organic herbal tea, but are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm ready to go, uh, but I don't always have to go have caffeine to be ready to go. You strike me like somebody who's got natural energy. I, I, uh, <laughs> I think that's accurate. <laughs> For sure. So Seth, my title is Chief Java Junkie. Yeah. I love your title, which is TEO Emeritus. Right. Can you share with the Java Junkie community why sure. that's your title and what you do? Sure. Well, when we started the company, we knew that making great tea that you know tasted like tea, uh, brewed with real tea leaves, was our most important task. And so I took on the title of TEO, uh, which also included being the CEO of Honest Tea. But you know, over the years, that position has evolved. So um, we now have someone who is the general manager of the business. And my title within Honest Tea is TEO Emeritus, so that I help guide the, the direction of the company, the strategy of the company. And then my other side of my title, I, I have a, a so I work half my time with Honest Tea, and then I spend half my time as executive chairman of a company called Beyond Meat, which is based out in California. So I really have these dual roles. So take me into a typical day. If we were, <laughs> we're here, we should let sure. our job and yeah. He's no, we're here in Bethesda at one of, or is this Honest the headquarters? global headquarters? At the global headquarters, about <laughs> yeah. a 10 minute walk from my house, which oh, is good. awesome. Yeah. And about a four minute bike ride from my house. So nice. Very convenient. Yeah. The best commute possible. So if... I were a fly on the wall yeah. here. What would what would you be? What would I be seeing sure. and, and sure. you do yeah. on a day to day basis? Uh, so you know, today my work is extremely varied and diverse. And so I just had a meeting this morning talking about Honesty's mission and thinking about how we continue to evolve it to, as we to stay relevant, not just for what we build here in the United States, but globally. So earlier last month, I was in Europe and we launched Honesty uh, really across the whole continent. And so we were selling Honest Coffee in Spain and we were selling honest, an honest chocolate drink in Germany 
and then of course honest tea uh, and, and a sparkling lemonade in Switzerland. In each market, thinking about what is the right package, brand, and message, and mission, how do we keep it all consistent as we build and scale this, but is now becoming a global brand. So that's some of the work we'll do with Odyssey. The other one, of course, we're really looking at is packaging. We have to make sure we continue to challenge ourselves to, to make, if we're committed to sustainability, it has to be across not just the ingredient sourcing, but the packaging as well. So that's that's a, a fair representation of the kind of work I'll be doing for Honest Tea. And then the other half of the day, we'll be talking to the folks at Beyond Meat, thinking about there too, we're looking at international expansion, but we're also thinking about financing and growth. And so what's the right strategy for that? Thinking about the team uh, and how do we expand that business and, and innovate in that business and bring on new key customers. So it's an unusual job description that uh, I'm, you know, I feel very thankful for every day. So for Java junkies who may not be as familiar with Beyond Meat, yeah. what is it and what's the mission? Sure. So I'll, I'll just share how I got to it. I have My family and I have been vegetarian for 13 years. And we have always been disappointed in the taste and quality of veggie burgers. <laughs> I used to joke that if someone were trying to discourage people from becoming vegetarian, the, the veggie burger would be a great strategy because you taste one, you say, I just, that doesn't taste good enough for me to make a switch. And so about six years ago now, I found out about this company getting started on the West Coast, which was seeking to replicate the taste and texture of meat with plants. And that's what Beyond Meat does. So we have our flagship product is called the Beyond Burger, and it's the first plant-based burger to be carried in the meat section of the grocery store. And it is... What's, and why is that important? Well, it's a critical because, you know, the 5% of the population that's vegetarian buys their product in the freezer. That's where most veggie products are. But the 95% of the population that isn't vegetarian buys their protein in the meat section. And so to be the first plant-based product carried in the meat section means we meet a much wider audience. And what we're seeing in the sales numbers are especially exciting because in a lot of the markets, we're actually outselling the typical hamburger with the Beyond Burger. Really? And so that's a transformational event when we can sell more plant-based burgers than hamburgers in the meat section of the store and it helps to transform the meat section. And then, of course, we're also seeing that interest translate in restaurants as well. So for me, I can wake up every day feeling like, you know, we're really working to help transform people's diets, both in terms of calorie consumption, in terms of organic, with respect to honest tea, and then with Beyond Meat, thinking about how we move them to more plant-based diets too. When you and your former Yale Business School professor Gary Nelba yeah. Gary decided to partner together to found Honest Tea. Yeah. You wanted it to be a social enterprise. Absolutely. Can you talk sure. and explain what a social enterprise is and yeah. why that was important? Yeah. Well, I always have considered myself an activist. I worked in the nonprofit sector and the public sector before going to business school. And so I actually went into business school thinking I would come back out working in, in the nonprofit arena. And it was at business school that I learned more about the idea that a, a, a business can be a driver of change, of environmental change dietary nutritional change and, and even around labor standards. And so even coming out of business school, I knew I still wanted to be involved in creating, you know, would be, I, I would say a social enterprise. And what I mean by that is it's a, an enterprise that pursues public goals. And it, to me, it's almost agnostic about whether it's for-profit or non-profit, right? You can think about certain, there are non-profits that help try to move people towards healthier diets, or there are non-profits that try to advance organic um, agriculture or try to advance fair trade. And so so then I think about, well, if that nonprofit is pursuing a cause, is there a for-profit way to pursue the same cause? 
And so that's what we do at Honest Tea. You know, what I joke is that in the first 10 years of Honest Tea's life, we, we operated as a nonprofit, not just because we were so mission driven, but because we had no profits. <laughs> and that's that's comes along with the territory. And, and the benefit of that is that you still get to do the work you believe in. Um, the downside is, you know, there may not be any financial rewards for it. But, um, you know, as long as you're doing work you believe in, it's still work worth doing. So there are lots of videos and interviews that you've done with people, with other journalists and other mm-hmm. podcasters talking about how you found Honest Tea. And I recommend Java Junkies look for that. Okay. I'm not going to yeah. put you through okay. that story again. But Seth, could you share a little bit of the, as the Chinese call it, the eating bitterness mm. that you went through. You yeah. mentioned there weren't financial rewards, right. but it was much no, more, more than, than that. that. There were yeah. no, you and your wife and you have three sons, sons yeah. were really trying to figure out how you were going to pay the bills. Yeah. yeah, it was tight. It was really tough. We grew this very you know, organically just because we didn't have a ton of resources. So we never had more money than we needed just to keep the lights on for the business. And as a family, we basically had just the same amount of money, which was sort of a minimal salary and and, uh, enough to sort of keep the kids fed, clothed, and doing some baseball or, or, you know, um, some other small extracurricular things. But the challenge was in the beginning is we had a product that really did well in the natural channel, but the natural channel was still quite underdeveloped, meaning we could be sold in all the natural food stores in the country. This was 20 years ago and still maybe doing a few million dollars in sales and not really crossing over because the distribution channels didn't cross over. And we would go to distributors who, what I mean by that, there's sort of natural food distributors and beverage distributors. And so we, the natural distributors loved us and they brought us to all their co-ops and Whole Foods and, and other stores. But the beverage distributors, the folks distributing Arizona or Nantucket Nectars or, or um, Canada Dry Ginger Ale, things like that, they weren't interested in working with us because they thought our product was too much of a niche. And so we were in, at the risk of being pigeonholed into the small niche that was a, a nice, you know, sort of quaint business, but not a, a growth business. And we we were always serious about democratizing this this um, concept of organic and healthy drinks. We wanted to make them available everywhere. So the aspiration was there, but the business wasn't. And so it just meant a lot of uh, rejection from distributors and challenges there. And then we also had challenges around finding production facilities. They, they too thought it was too small an opportunity. And so they didn't really give us, they didn't see us the kind of business growth opportunity for themselves. So we had to find, kind of had to beg our way into different bottling plants to ask them to, to make our product for us. So it was, it was a challenge. And I, you know, and it's funny, I was just with my son this morning. We were, he was telling me how we saw all these people drinking honest tea at, at the Whole Foods he was at and just, you know, people grabbing that. And that was so nice to hear. And I said, I said, I don't know if I had have the fire to, to start us to do that a second time. Cause it was really hard to build that kind of presence. And obviously it took 20 years to get here. So I'm glad I have no regrets about it, but there were a lot of lean years. And, you know, that said, I never wavered in my desire to to build it. And my wife never wavered in her support uh, of it. As anyone who's ever enjoyed a bottle of Honest Tea knows, one of your distinguishing factors, in addition to there being very little, if any, sugar, is the fact that there are very few ingredients. Right, right. What are the ingredients in the TEO of Honest Tea (laughs) that you think 
led to your success? Yeah. Well, clearly passion for, for what we're doing. So that, that, and the passion is based on the mission. So I would say passion and mission, a real sense of that. And then there is that, I, I would say a relentless energy that partially comes out of the passion, but also just is inbred that I just do. I do have a lot of energy and I need it, you know? And, and I think the last piece would just be optimism because you can have the energy, you can have the passion, but every entrepreneur has to bring some optimism to it because you have to see the world in a different way or what it could be and um, believe that you will make it happen even when it seems <laughs> the facts seem to be against you. It reminds me of a story my dad loves to tell. He doesn't tell it anymore because we've heard it so many times, but of the twins that are put in a room. I think this is a made up story. And one of them, the pessimist is put in a room with all kinds of amazing toys, beautiful, everything you can imagine. And the optimist is put in the room with a big pile of horse manure. Yeah. And the pessimist is just sitting there not playing with anything. And when the psychologist asks him, why, why didn't you play with, oh, you know, sharp objects. I was afraid I would get yeah. cut. I would get this. And he goes to the room with the little boy who's the optimist and he's got a shovel and he's shoveling away and he's happy and he's whistling. And the doctor says, what could you possibly see here that makes you happy? And he says, well, with all this manure, horse manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. Is that you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's accurate. Yeah. Another way to say it is the, you know, what is it? The, the optimist sees the donut, the pessimist sees the hole. So I see the donut. <laughs> <laughs> but it would have to be a sugar-free or yeah, something. Yeah, organic, yeah, yeah. organic <laughs> ingredients. Can you talk about how you, in hindsight, see your time back in high school when yeah. you were a wrestler yeah. and a mediocre wrestler? I think your <laughs> words were terrible wrestler yeah, in high school. Yeah. Actually helped you prepare for what it would take to build on a state. Yeah, yeah. And so... Yes, I was a, a, a mediocre at best wrestler. I, my first year was one in ten, and that was just because someone didn't show up, and I get, got the got the forfeit. But I wasn't just a wrestler. I think the real key to my behavior in high school and in college it was uh, multitasking all the time. So I was on the wrestling team, but I was also in the musical and in the, in the uh, chorus and in the acapella group and in the student government and in the debate society. So I was doing a lot, and the same happened in college. Ran track four years, did musicals, singing groups, and government there too. And, um, of course, studied a lot, <laughs> got some work, did my classes too. And I think that the key there was that able to do many tasks at once. And that's actually still describes my work today, both obviously when it was just honesty, that was what a CEO or entrepreneur does is multitasks. And once, you know, the, the sole description of being a CEO of a business evolved, then it was, okay, then can I give my focus to two different businesses and, and play that role? And so, and of course, in addition to that, there's also, work as the co-founder of Bethesda Green, our local sustainability nonprofit, and um, several other boards that I'm on as well. And of course, being still very engaged and committed with my family. So I think that multitasking is, is, is a, that was perhaps my specialization more than any other particular field. As I hear you talk, I'm reminded of an interview that I did recently with Dr. Arthur Brooks, who is the president of the American Enterprise Institute. Right. He has a very interesting story, but the reason that I interviewed him is that in his own research, he has stumbled upon and fine-tuned a formula for building a happy life. Mm. And I'm 
thinking, mm. you've got the ingredients right there. It's faith, family, mm. friends, and meaningful work yeah. in which you feel that you're giving back. I don't know. Does that... Yeah, that certainly resonates. You know, I actually have... Uh, I My favorite formula for a happy life is actually a much more simpler equation, which is when what you have is greater than what you want. And so the way to think about... Most people think about that, well, I've got to have more in order to be happy. I actually think that the way to be happy is to want less. And then by definition, you'll have more than you want. One of the things I read about you, and obviously today, Honest Tea is a hugely successful business. You mentioned you sold it to Coca-Cola right. in 2011. That was the, the other 60% that I guess you eventually yes. sold because you right. sold 40% a few years before that. Right. You could have, I'm, you can do what you want yeah. with your life. Yeah. And you're still living in the home here in Bethesda yeah. that you had before you could have bought, mm-hmm. I'm sure a much bigger house. Why did you decide to stay? We love our home. It was, it was, you know, and we were just with our boys this weekend. They were all sort of recalling, reminiscing about how wonderful it was a place to live. It's, it's located right on a park here in Bethesda. So we had three active boys. There's no better physical location for that. I still go out and, you know, running in the park and playing in the park. Um, it was bikeable to work and, and, uh, also to their schools. And so it's our, home. And so we have no desire to, you know, peel ourselves away from, from our home. Is there another lesson though in there for Java junkies? In yeah. Terms of- well, certainly for us, we knew, you know, we were happy. We were happy during those first 10 years when honesty had very little and our family had very little because we had what was important. And so we see now there's more material um, wealth within the family, but we still have what's important. And so the week we just had as a family and on vacation was just about being together. It wasn't about where we were. Well, it was, that was the biggest benefit of it. And so I think knowing what makes you happy will get finding that out early <laughs> is healthy. And so, um, don't have the illusion that somehow money will make you happier. You met your wife when and how? Yeah. Met her in 1988. We were both working on the campaign trail. Uh, we were working for Lloyd Benson's vice presidential campaign. And we met in Longview, Texas, which is a remote part of uh, well, East Texas. And <laughs> we joked that we were the only two people who look like we look in East Texas. Uh, and so people actually thought we were married, even though we had just met. <laughs> and what's the secret to having long yeah. longevity yeah. and happy marriage. I think an alignment of values, I think having a strong sense of independence for both parties that my wife has always had her own career. She's been incredibly supportive and critical to Honest T's growth, but she uh, never defined her identity just by that. And so... But it must have been tough when you were going through the lean years. You know, it's funny. There were, in the early, early years, <laughs> I would share with her every challenge I went through. And she is somebody who retains the worries much more than I do. So I would share the worry and then I'd be done with it. But then she'd be awake, tossing and turning at night, you know, and I had already left it behind. So we learned to get to a better cadence where, you know, <laughs> sometimes I'd sigh and she's at on. <laughs> it's funny. We, we've just been really fortunate. We have always been on the same page, not just about our values, but about the way we, we live and what's important. And so there weren't these, when, when there could have been a lot of stress points around money, we just said, well, money's just not that important to us. So that's not going to create the challenge for us. What's the advice you've given your kids, if any, yes. about 
picking the right partner. So actually, I tell my kids, there's three big decisions you make in life. The first one is who you spend it with. And so you really need to think critically about it. You need to, to make sure you have not just your sort of values, but what is what do you want out of life together. And so that's the first one. Then what kind of work you do, obviously, is important. Uh, and then where you live, because that defines your community and the network of people you, you meet and interact with as well. So I feel like I've gotten those three right. But the first, it starts with the first one. If you don't get the first one right, it's hard to have the others feel good. So I'd like to flash back a little further in your life to when you were an undergrad and you went to Harvard. Yeah great school and you were a government major. Right. Yeah. I thought I was, I thought I was going to be involved in politics as, as noted, you know, I worked on this presidential campaign and then I ended up working for Lloyd Benson on Capitol Hill for a few years. So I thought that government was the most effective way to make important changes in people's lives. And, and while obviously I think government still can play an important role, I have to say that one of the most pleasant surprises of my career has been how powerful business can be and how much less bureaucratic it can be. You know, so we have been able, I also recognize we've been very fortunate here, but, you know, we're having a significant impact at honesty on people's health trajectories. The, the latest and perhaps you know, most exciting recent development is that just earlier at the end of last year, we got Honest Kids to be carried in all of the McDonald's restaurants around the country. Great. And so it's a, we put in a drink that has 35 calories. It replaced a drink that was at 80 calories. So a 45 calorie differential. We'll sell over 200 million units of Honest Kids with McDonald's in the 12 month period. So there on its own, that's displacing about a billion calories from the American diet. And so, you know, that's a very powerful trend. It's something that even if the government tried, and I don't think the government should try to do, it necessarily could do. But in the marketplace, by making a product that's competitive and, and available, we've been able to have that impact. So that's a neat example. Obviously, with organic, we can look at the um, expansion of organic acreage that we've helped drive through our purchasing, mostly around the world. And there too is really exciting to see. And that's once again, something that government wouldn't necessarily be able to make happen. And the same with fair trade. We're able to help promote higher living standards in our supplier community. We're buying some of the world's cheapest commodities, right? Sugar, tea, and usually those are bought at the sort of low prices. But when you put organic and fair trade certifications in place, you actually embed a premium that goes back to these communities. And there too, we can have dramatic impacts on these communities around their access to healthcare, to education. And so these are things that really do help in a way that you know government wouldn't necessarily do it. And it's all happening in the marketplace. We don't have to go out and do fundraising every year. The consumer is our funder. In the sense, it's almost to the extent that you think about it in a political metaphor, it's an election that happens every day, and where consumers vote with their dollars, and and uh, we certainly appreciate when they choose to support what we support. It's interesting how you have evolved yeah. in your thinking, but but still kind of staying true to what your initial interest yeah. was, which was influencing better policy. Yeah. That's right. And, and if you had told me 20 years ago that we'd have the impact we're having, but you told me it was through a nonprofit or through a government, and I would have that's neat. That's nice to know that's happening. I think the surprise for me is that it ended up working in business. So when you graduated with your BA in government, yeah. what was your first job out of school and how did you get sure. it? Sure. So I ended up going to China for a year. I had studied, I had my thesis at college was about economic reform in both Russia and China. And so I got to China. Um, basically with a backpack and base just sort of went around talking to different people, ended up getting a job teaching at uh, a Chinese university. 
and also working at night for the Washington Post, the bureau chief there. Yeah, Who was that Dan, at the time? Dan Sutherland. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So he, he gave me a job as kind of a everything guy, you know, go out and fetching things or interviews or, or meeting people or finding out or helping to edit articles. And so that was just uh, so fun. And also multitasking, right? Teaching and then biking across the city to work at the Post and then biking back in the morning because the, the deadline in Beijing was opposite of the U.S. So I'd be biking you know, back to school at 6 a.m. and then go teaching. And there were no cars on the roads. No, not then. Yeah. And then came back uh, from China, worked on the presidential campaign where I met my wife or fiance at the time, and then went back and worked in Russia for a year and a half teaching there as well. And so um, once again, got exposed. And I think that the great thing about travel is it is an entrepreneurial pursuit. It's literally you're going into a country with very little knowledge or resources and you have to kind of find your way and build a life. And that's what I did in both China and in Russia. And so those were great entrepreneurial training grounds for me. What else did you do, Seth, while you were at Harvard in terms of the extracurriculars yeah. or internships mm-hmm. or other yeah. things you've alluded to yeah. some that in hindsight now you say, oh yeah, that actually really did help yeah. prepare me for this sure. life. So here's a funny one. My, so um, my parents were both professors and I remember at the time I was doing track and my mother would say, and my father too, you know, you're at this world-class institution. Does it make sense for you to be spending so much time running around, <laughs> running around in circles? Um, shouldn't you be? And I said, well, I am taking these courses, but it turns out that there were two benefits of being on track. First was the, the discipline of exercising every day, getting sort of channeling my energy and being able to derive the benefits. And then also developing really deep and close personal relationships with, with my teammates as well, many of whom I'm still very close with. But that, it was both the discipline of exercise every day as well as the benefit of the energy you get from it. And I think that probably served me at least as well as any anything else I did. And I still exercise every day because just for me personally, I need to be able to process the things that happen to have some space for myself. So for me, that has been a continuous theme through, since college. And that was actually how you stumbled <laughs> yeah, that on inspired me to, on to honest tea. Honest tea. Yeah, after a run, I went, I went to a cafe to try to find something to drink and everything was so sweet. And I said, there's there's, like, there's a gap here. And then even our latest innovation on a sport, which is an organic sports drink that was inspired after a triathlon I did and got to the finish line and they were feeding me a blue sports drink. And I said, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> and thought there should be some other options for athletes besides these blue sports drinks. And why isn't there anything organic out there? Seth, there are all kinds of influencers who are out in the podcasting Mm -hmm. world and in the publishing world who are telling aspiring Java junkies who want to be entrepreneurs, do not bother with college. You are wasting your money. Gary Mm -hmm. Vaynerchuk is one of them. And actually, he helped inspire me to think of doing a podcast. What's your sense? I do. I actually think... I think, you know, what you really get out of college, and I have my youngest son is, is entering his senior year in college now, so all of our sons have gone through college. You, what you get in college is the ability to think and analyze, and you don't necessarily get that you go right into the work world. So, for example, one of the courses that still serves me well, I took poetry writing courses, uh, and part of that is just being playful with language and thinking evocatively about language. We were just going over a mission statement and, and for honesty, and, and what, the first draft was just so sterile. And I said, yes, it's accurate. 
but it doesn't inspire. So how do you create language that, that connects with people and inspires and gives them a sense of, of your broader purpose? So that's something I've drawn on and continue to draw on. And of course, through our, our bottle cap quotes, we love sharing those insights as well. But I think, you know, especially in today's economy where, you know, that the, the, the sort of the traditional business jobs are kind of all, they're out there. They're what's, I think, where most millennials are interested in is, is kind of that cross, that intersection, what Steve Jobs used to talk about, the intersection between art and science. And how do we how do we develop ideas and then commercialize ideas where there is some creativity? And so just going right into the work world, you might miss the chance to connect poetry and business, to connect art and business, and to think more expansively. And so I, I am still a believer in that liberal arts education. And of course, now because people switch jobs so frequently, switch sectors so frequently, I, I'm strongly against the idea of just a, a training for one profession or one type of work. What about social enterprises? Yeah. And for those Java junkies who are aspiring entrepreneurs, what is your pitch as to why they should consider? building a social yeah. enterprise or going to work for a social yeah. enterprise yeah. like an honest team? Well, the biggest reward is the one I still feel every day, which is you can get up and do work you believe in, you know, and so that is a rare, not, not everybody can say they do that. And we'll have tough days here at, at both honesty or beyond me, but I never come home thinking it wasn't work worth doing. And I have a lot of friends who did pursue careers in business or, or, you know, with law firms and they said, well, it's a good living, but I, I'm not, I don't know that I'm making a meaningful contribution to anything. And, and so here that we always feel like this is work we can believe in, that we can be passionate about. The rewards when we either hear from consumers about the role Honest Tea or Beyond Meat has played in their lives and transforming their diet, their family's diet, their parents' diet, their children's diet is, is just profound. But on top of that, when I can go to our some of the sourcing suppliers, whether it's in India or Paraguay, and see the impact we have on these communities. I mean, like I say, that if I were running a nonprofit and I could feel that impact, I'd be gratified. So to do it as a business is, is even more great. Gratifying. So I, I, you know, what I've said to a lot of entrepreneurs, and, I, and I, I work with a lot. There's no downside. I mean, yes, the business name. But there's a there's a financial downside, but there's no spiritual downside to doing work you believe in. What is the best career advice you've ever received? I think the best advice I got when we were building Honest Tea was build this business like you are going to own it forever. Don't try to build it to flip. And of course, we started in 1998. This is just around the time that the dot-com boom. So a lot of folks were flipping these businesses. But Jeff Swartz, who was our board member and the CEO of Timberland, had said, build it like you want to own it forever. And so think for the long term. Think about... And, and we have. And obviously, here I am 20 years later, I'd say, I still feel like this is the business that we envisioned. In fact, it's more than the business we envisioned. It was what we aspired to. We, we still have aspirations, but we are today more honest than we were 20 years ago because, you know, when we started, not everything was organic. Certainly, it wasn't all fair trade certified. None of it was fair trade certified. So, but we, our trajectory, we know what direction we're headed and we continue to direct the business that way. And so, I feel that that was a, a, that was a great way to think. And it, and it has helped us create enterprises of lasting value. And in fact, 
you, yes, you founded Honesty and you sold Honesty yeah. in 2011, and you are the rare founder who's still with the right, company. Right, right. No, it's true. Most of the uh, CEOs, once they launch a business and sell it, they move on to the next thing. And I'm still here because, first of all, I believe very much in our cause, in our mission, and I and we're still building it. So I still, if I were, if somehow Honesty had gone in a different direction, I would not have stuck around. But this is these are the days that I used to uh, daydream about back 20 years ago when it was challenging. When we were having a hard time, I kept thinking, well, someday we'll be able to make this into an international business. And, and now we're doing that. Or someday we'll be able to bring this to a mass channel like McDonald's, which we're now doing. So this is the rare opportunity to actually realize the, the rewards of all the work we've invested in it. One of the questions that I try to ask all the professionals yeah. that I interview, and especially those who've been at it for a while, is to share a story, a time in their professional life when they either got fired or mm. failed or yeah. had some big event. Yeah that required them to really dig deep to get through the other side. Yeah. Can you share sure. one of those examples? I think that's so many. I think with Honesty, the, certainly the, the toughest days were when we owned a, a portion of a bottling plant and we were making our product there and it just wasn't working out. I mean, we had broken glass one point, so broken glass ended up in the bottles and, and the plant was in financially just always on the brink of running it out of business. And I was not succeeding. And so I got to this place where it's like, look, this, this thing can pull us under if we, it's like an anchor and it just keeps dragging the business down. And eventually we managed to extract ourselves from it. We sold it to, to um, someone who took it over and actually did, did fine with it. But I think for me, it helped really crystallize what, not just what I was good at, but what was really, what really counted, which was a bottling, a successful bottling plant is not a successful brand. And so rather than worry, uh, spending all my time worrying about labelers and boilers, I really should be worried about building a brand that stood for something. And it was only after we extracted ourselves from that bottling plant that we got to uh, become a much faster growing brand that resonated with consumers. And so I think it was a really challenging moment and it was absolutely failure going on there, but it didn't define me or the business. Final time for coffee question. Yeah. Seth, if you could go back to Harvard or any school and do your undergraduate experience again, based on the wisdom that you have now, mm -hmm. what advice would you give yourself? I wouldn't have changed anything in terms of my learning. I think I probably would have tried. I should have told myself to enjoy things a little more. I was probably a little too intense. I did. It's funny. I don't, I didn't really party at college. Maybe uh, I don't know if I should have partied, but I could have just relaxed a little more, but I don't regret it. I think being, there's nothing wrong with being, having a sense of purpose and being directed. I obviously didn't know I was going to become a, an entrepreneur at the time, but I was always going after things. And I guess, you know, that, that has, that mindset and that personality has stuck with me. So I don't regret it. I, but I, I'm trying I, 20 years later, I guess now 30 years later, trying to do a better job of smelling the roses and, or and the not, tea leaves or the tea leaves. And in this case with my family, like we just had this a wonderful vacation this the past few weeks. And, and so that, that's a great opportunity just to be able to enjoy and, and celebrate things too. Seth, thank you sure. so much yeah. for making time for coffee and tea, tea. with me. <laughs> <laughs> and the Java Junkie community today. It's great to be with you. I'm so excited for your new podcast. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 
24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.